0: And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who, re- who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, Surely I will go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman." Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Haber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zaninim, which is near Kadesh. And Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword." And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harosheth Hagoyim, and all the armour of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So she turned to, So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes to you and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead. With a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning, those of you tuning in. Um, Great reading, Sky. You know, today we come to another peculiar event in Israel's history. Last week, if you joined us, we saw the story of Ehud, the left hander, and how, after really getting stuck into Eglon, uh, he brought peace to Israel for 80 years. But after he dies, it didn't take long for Israel to plunge back into the dumpster. And the cycle has begun yet again, except this time the enemy doesn't come from outside like Eglon or like double wickedness. Remember the other two guys? The enemy doesn't come from outside Israel, but actually there's enemies within the camp, so to speak. His name is Jabin and he's got a fearsome warlord to do his dirty work. And let's just say that he's armed to the teeth with the latest in Warcraft technology. He has 900 chariots. Not just any chariots, they're chariots of iron. They're like tanks, which could mow down any opposing army in a matter of minutes. So given this dire situation, you'd think that this would be the time to raise up another Othniel, right? But the camera takes us to a woman sitting under a palm tree. Of course, she's no ordinary gal. She's a prophetess, and she urges a bloke named Barak to man up and to fight. Even though he's been given his marching orders and guaranteed the victory, he insists that she hold his hand, which she goes along with it, but tells him at the end of the day, Barak, you're not going to be the one that gets the trophy. Regardless, the show must go on. So Barak rounds up those willing to fight and as soon as the bad guy hears about it, he rallies his troops, 900 chariots in all. And this famous prophetess tells Barak, Go get them. Spring up into action. The Lord is the one who goes before you. And you hear the crashing sound of swords and shields. Surprisingly, the bad guys get smashed by Israel. So much that the infamous warlord hops off his chariot and runs for the hills. And he books it all the way to a random campsite. And there's a nice lady there who meets him and calls out to him from her tent offering shelter. Now he's feeling somewhat relieved at this point, especially given the warm welcoming he's received. It also seems like a safe space to hide and take a nap. She'll even give him a, a warm glass of milk and a blanket. But once this guy is snoozing, she crushes his head. Just then, Barack is passing by with his men on the hunt for the bad guy, and this woman opens her tent up again, calls out to him, Yoo-hoo, check out what I have in my tent. Just as predicted, the fame has gone to another. Pretty humiliating, but the upshot is with both the warlord and his army crushed, the evil king Jabin has nothing left, which means his reign has a serious time stamp. And what better way to celebrate this victory than to burst out into a song? And that's exactly what they do in chapter 5. That's today's text in a nutshell. Chapter 4 is a story, if you like, Chapter 5 is a song, or you could say prose and poetry to be more technical. Chapter 4, story. Chapter 5, song. They both record, they both recount the same event, but from different angles, so to speak. Both point to a smashing victory, and even though you've got a deliverer and a prophetess, the real champion seems to come out of nowhere and totally nails it. Today I want to focus mainly on Chapter Four, but we're going to dip into Chapter Five to add some color to it. So that's where we're headed in this extremely uh, unusual event that's very piercing. So let's let's uh, let's pray and let's ask God to bless our time. Father, we pray now as we're in different places, not only uh, geographically, Lord, but different places emotionally. Uh, Lord, we pray that we'd be challenged and encouraged as your word is taught. That The words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing in your sight. In Christ's name, amen. So chapter four begins with an all too familiar theme, right? The Israelites did what was evil in the eyes of God again. The reason they turned away from God, we're told, is that Ehud died. At this point, the author pretty much skips over Shamgar, as we did. (laughs) Shamgar is one of those minor judges. He just gets like a verse that you see at the end of chapter three. Um, He's worth mentioning though, because he stops an invasion of Philistines and he kills 600 of them with a cattle prod. Now that's impressive. That's not a a common weapon. he, He he stops them, but what he doesn't stop and what the author doesn't note there is that Israel turned away from sin. So he he, he stops militarily an in invasion, but he actually can't stop the evilness of Israel's hearts. And so here we go again. They go off the rails, then they're oppressed. Here's the cycle, right? They go off the rails, then they're oppressed. They groan or cry out to God and in response, he delivers them. Look, See for yourself here in chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sesera. Again, all too familiar theme, but something's a bit different if you've noticed it there. Something's a bit different this time. The first oppression lasted eight years. Then it was eight now it's 20. Also the first two enemies came from outside Canaan and invaded the promised land. This time they're homegrown. We're told that Jabin is the king of Canaan. He's reigning in the northern part of Israel. And he's got a ruthless thug commanding the army. A guy named Sisera who harshly dominates Israel. Harshly dominates Israel for 20 years now let me put this in some perspective think back to the attacks of September 11th on 9-11 where were you how old were you what were you doing for a job can you remember back that far that was 20 years ago 20 years coming up the anniversary of that so Imagine from that point, however old you you were, some of you weren't even born that are watching this, but 20 years ago, wherever you were, imagine from that day, way back then, all the way to this present day, you, your family, your friends are living in fear. There's just chaos all around you, kind of like what we're seeing in Afghanistan right now. And and the times are so scary and uncertain that you can't take the main highways. You have to take the winding paths, the back roads, the dark alleys for your own safety. And and listen, there are actually 40,000 men at the time who could stand up against the enemy, but they wouldn't dare do so. So what do you do in a dire situation like that? When there's no hope, really, you cry out to the Lord. And that's what they do. You know, it's often in the difficulties and the hardships that we are reminded of our need for the Lord. Whenever everything goes as planned and the way we want it to, what happens? We have this tendency to forget about God. And so these hardships remind us of how much we need him. They remind us to cry out and say, help, we can't make it. That's what the Lord is up to as he's using evil Caesarea We need to see the sovereignty of God in uh, in all of this. He's using it for the good of his people. So friend, don't despise the hardships in your life. Cry out to God. The Lord hears you. And just look who rises to the occasion to bring peace and stability and order. Verse four, enter the prophetess Deborah. Now Deborah, verse four, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now, it's interesting. um, They come to this mother of Israel, and they ask her, what should we do? So she's judging, disputes probably, but on the minds of many Jews would have been, what are we supposed to do about this oppression that's lasted the last 20 years? And she goes, I've got just the guy in mind. The man of the hour, his name is Lightning, after all. Barak, Lightning. I mean, if that sounds like a Marvel superhero, right? So, verse 7, not only that, God speaks to Barak through Deborah, and look at this, verse 7, He says, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon and his chariots and his troops. Now listen, and I will give him into your hand. What assurance. God himself goes into battle. He'll give Sisera into your hand. Should be done and dusted, right? Well, not exactly. Notice the conditions Barak puts around this in verse 8. Barak says to her, if you... Notice, if you go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. Wow. He's actually received orders and have been assured of victory, yet he is still reluctant to believe God's promise. So he wants Deborah to go with him because he doesn't really trust and believe what God has said. And Deborah is clearly taken back by this. She'll go with him if he insists, but there will be a price to pay, and that comes in verse 9. Notice verse 9. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sesera into the hand of a woman. Now you hear that, and you even wonder if Barak hears that, and he goes, oh, well, you must be talking about yourself, right? The Lord will sell Sesera into the hand. I'll get the glory. After all, Deborah... Her name is Honeybee, so maybe she'll be the sting to Israel's foes, so to speak, right? But hold on. Wait just a minute, because it's not going to be Deborah, and it's not going to be Barak, obviously. They're, the nail in the coffin is going to come a little bit later. But for now, look at this. Barak hesitates. Now, isn't that interesting? He, God has already told him, Go. Do it. It makes you wonder why he hesitates, right? I mean, could it be, could it be that his fear, trepidation, his hesitancy simply reflects many of the men in Israel of this time and how they were scared? I mean, for example, in chapter 5, as Men from various tribes are being summoned to fight. You hear one excuse after the next. Look at this. It'll come up here on the left of the screen. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coasts of the sea, staying by his landings. You see, stacks of men were called upon to lead. Stacks of men were called upon to lead, but couldn't be bothered. The boys from Reuben were too busy caring for the animals. The blokes from Gilead dodged the draft. The guys from Dan were out fishing with the ships. And the dudes from Asher were beach bombs. When the call of duty went out, instead of stepping up to lead and defend their families, these guys suffered from Peter Pan syndrome. They didn't know how to grow up. They're too distracted with petty things and too chicken to join the fight. But there were some men amongst the boys who stepped up. Check, check out the next verse. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. So to what made these guys men of valor? That's the question. It wasn't their numbers or their brute strength. That's the key. It, it was faith. See, because 10,000 soldiers might sound like a lot, but against 900 chariots, they could easily be turned into mincemeat. What made these men stand out was their trust in God's word. Remember what Deborah said? The Lord had assured Barak and his men that they would prosper. And that, and that alone, is what pushed them forward. My fellow brothers in this church that are listening, will you join the fight? Will you spiritually take charge and lead your families? God has called you to be the spiritual leader in your home, He has equipped you for this task. What are you going to do? Go fishing? be a beach bum, take care of animals, or will you step up and lead? Will you act like men? And ladies, we need you as Deborahs in our life. We need to be reminded of God's good promises as we step out to lead. We need your encouragement prodding us along, so to speak. It's interesting, when we get to this n- the actual battle, y- you almost wonder if Barak is, is getting cold feet. Because she has to remind him, has not the Lord gone before you? This is your time, buddy. Step up, fight. He, he, God uses Deborah to encourage Barak. But the key there, and here, here's, here's the part that still puzzles me. In Hebrews 11, there's only a, a handful of judges that are listed in what's called the Hall of Faith. Right? So you picture like, you know, Hall of Fame, Hall of Faith, Guess who makes the Hall of Faith? It's not Deborah. It's Barak. Like, really? The only thing I can c- conclude from that is that it was just faith. That the guy wasn't charging the field like Leonidas. You know? This is where we hold them. This is where we fight. This is where they die. On these shields, boys. Oh. Remember this day, men, for the will be yours for all time, you know. Give them nothing, but take from them everything. I've seen that too many times. I, I, I understand. Um, anyway. But that's not like he was Leonidas, right? He's a scared guy, but on God's promises alone is what pushes him over the line. Does that make sense? That's encouraging, Because if he was an SAS guy, we'd all sort of look at that and go, wow, good for him. But God takes the ordinary, the scaredy cat, the lazy person, the doofus, the ordinary person, and says, I'm going to use that person if they will trust me and my word. I find that extremely encouraging. So let's get back to the story here in in chapter 4, verse 10. So at this point, We're ready to see some action, right? And the music becomes intense. But then in verse 11, this random detail just comes out of nowhere, totally interrupts the moment. It's as if the camera pans away and takes you to a family living in a tent. Nothing exciting, no battle cries, or people suiting up for war, just a dude, Heber, and his wife, Jael. Like, look, look, look what I mean. Look at verse 10, right? And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. Remember, those were the men of valor. And 10,000 men went up with him at his heels, and Deborah went with him. Now Heber, oh, here here it comes. Okay, now the camera goes, and moves over to this, like, campsite. Now Heber the Canaanite had separated the Canaanites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zananaim, which is near Kadesh. Like, okay what just happened? Where? Did, how is this relevant? Get on with the story. Don't worry, the following verse takes us back into the excitement. As soon as Sisera hears that they're drawing up for battle, they've gathered themselves into this valley or wadi. He thinks, oh, pff, no problem. I'm going to take my 900 chariots and mow these guys down. And as they start making their way towards Israel, Deborah is accompanying Barak, just as she said, and then she has to spur him on. Remember, I've noted that one more time. Look at verse 14. Look what she says to him. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord, notice, routed Sesera and all his chariots, and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. Okay, now, how did that happen? Twenty years, no one stood up to this guy, and just, boom, he's he's done and dusted? Well, here in chapter 4, we don't actually get the details, but if you turn over to chapter 5, it fills it in for us. Notice in chapter 5, if you just turn there for a second, and chapter five, verse four, where we get a bit clearer of a picture, talks about earthquake and rain. Notice here, verse four, Lord, when you—this I mean, is the song, this is the celebration after the battle. Lord, when you sent out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel now look at verse 20 from heaven the stars fought from the courses they fought against Sesera, the torrent kishon swept them away the ancient torrent the torrent kishon you hear that what happened with this river flood stage probably during a time that was not a rainy season so it catches the canaanites by surprise and Cesarea probably thinks, oh, well, this is easy. It's it's not the rainy season. I can go smash these guys. And suddenly it starts bucketing. And what happens to 900 chariots in the mud? They get bogged. They sink. And they're sitting ducks. Remember, Barak and his men have 10,000 versus their 900. And so they annihilate them. Except one guy. Cesarea, who books it out of there. And where does he flee? To that random campsite that we just saw. Come back to chapter 4. Now we're introduced to another kind of deliverer. Her name is Jael, who's rather clever. You could call her a brain buster. Look at chapter 4, verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Canaanite. And notice, her husband's not around, right? It's really, really interesting. But she decides that she's going to make an alliance with Israel by taking this guy down. And Jael came out to meet Cesara, in verse 18, and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. It's interesting. She acts like a mother figure to him, right? Oh, Cesare, you look knackered. Poor little guy, you're all wet. Come on into my tent. I've got. I'll get you. I've got a nice cozy blanket for you. And and you know what? I know you're thirsty. How about a glass of warm milk? Notice the play on words too. What he says. I, I think there's a play on words here in verse 20. Verse 20, And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say, No. You see that? Before he falls asleep, he gives a final warning that if someone, a man, comes by and asks if there's a man in there, tell them, No. There isn't really a man in there so much as there's a wicked little boy being put to sleep. Right? And there's Jael. Hush by, Sesera. You can go to sleep now. Verse 21. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died, naturally. <laughs> So the one who delivers the death blow to Israel's nemesis, it's not Barak. It's not the famous prophetess. But it's a woman, and it's not just any woman. It is a foreigner, you see. A non-Israelite. In the next chapter, when they sing a song, notice the way they describe this in chapter 5, verse 24, and following. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed of tent-dwelling women. He asked for water and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera. She crushed, listen to this language here, she crushed his head. Now, I don't think that's just embellishing this brutal kill. I think there's a play on words there that are supposed to sort of evoke for us an image of the enemy's head being crushed. If you go all the way back to the very beginning when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, on that very sad day there was good news that one day he will send, through what's called the seed of the woman, meaning through Eve's line, someone who will crush the head of the serpent. And I think here we're getting a small snapshot of the enemy being crushed by the seed of the woman to bring deliverance to God's people. And here's what's fascinating. When you look at this passage, it's not the person you'd expect. It's the person you'd least expect. And that's intentional. But i want to go back to the story here. So, l- after she kills this guy, but Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent bag. Okay, we got there. Yep, and so he died, unnecessary detail. But verse 22, And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. Now, here's the deal. Who's the hero in this story? Not Barak. It's not even Deborah. It might be Jael to a point, but the Verse 23 tells us who the hero is. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. It is interesting. One commentator, as he compares this work here, ultimately God is the hero, but... His name is Barry Webb, and, and I find this really helpful. He says, The ironic juxtaposition of victor and vanquished in the same tent of jail is significant. The woman has, in effect, conquered them both. Cesara by depriving him of his life, and Barak by depriving him of the honor that should have been his as the chosen deliverer. The result of all this is ironically picturing Barak playing a role of Eglon's quarters. Remember last time when Eglon—they didn't—they didn't know he was dead, and so his—you know—his men are waiting, thinking that he's going to the toilet. And then they come in and they're shocked. It's like—it's almost like Barak plays that role in a way. He has lost the honor to a woman. He can only stand and stare. It is his punishment for trying to manipulate Yahweh and his prophetess Deborah. You know, God has given us very clear instructions how to know him, how to follow him. And when we try to sometimes negotiate that, we're on, I I think, ultimately robbing ourselves of flourishing, really. It's like, picture your car, and it's like if the Lord were to hop into your car and you say, okay, Lord, You can drive the car, but don't go down that street, especially on Saturday night, because that's where I go. And don't go over there, and make sure you don't do this. And what have we done? We've yielded only portions of our life over to God. We're trying to negotiate with him. And the Lord has a vastly better plan, walking in obedience to him, by faith. Look, it may seem crazy. Some of the decisions that you might have to make soon, to really honor Christ, might seem just insane to the world. But the Lord says, to, like it would have felt insane for Barak and his men to try to take on these 900 chariots. The Lord says, you trust me. Trust me. I want to. I want to say one last thing here. Some people have a hard time with the blood and the gore. And they think, oh, this is just horrible. Well, in case you think that Cesera is this innocent guy, there's, a, there's an interesting little tidbit here in chapter 5 about his mom. And who, who doesn't sympathize with the bereaved mother? But, but, but it's really interesting. You get a, a picture into the kind of people that were being conquered were, some of these Canaanites. Look at this, out of the window she peered, this is Sesera's mom in chapter five, verse 28. Out of the window she, she peered, the mother of Sesera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? So she's waiting for him, she's getting anxious. Her, she knows her son goes and he conquers and he comes back He's the great general. She's getting a bit unnerved by it. One of her handmaidens sort of leans over and says, let me put your mind at ease. The wisest princess's answer in verse 29, indeed, she himself answers, have they not found and divided the spoil? So they're thinking, they've conquered Israel, and we know. (laughs) We know that's actually not the case. But, But here's what's interesting. Look at this a womb or two for every man. Did you hear that? Have they not conquered the spoil? Have they not, did you hear the way that their understanding of women is? Have they not been able to rape and pillage and plunder? And what's interesting is that Sesera's mom and these ladies are actually celebrating that wickedness. Like they're not saying, oh gosh, I hope they're not doing that. They're like, don't worry, they're enjoying the pleasures of war now, of winning. Have they not found and divided divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials, embroidered, two pieces of dyed work, embroidered for the neck as spoil. And they're played the fools, aren't they? Hence, verse 31, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he... Rises in his might, and the land had rest for forty years. I don't know about you, but I find it encouraging that God is the one who brings justice to this world. We live in a world that can be extremely unnerving and frightening right now. Uh, things are are not honky dory. Things are vi- quite topsy turvy if you haven't figured that out here in Australia, in the Middle East, and really all over the world, we can look to a God who one day is now, is in heaven, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is worth following. He is absolutely worth trusting in that he is ruling all things for his glory and for the good of his people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word that we can feed on, trust in, and rely upon. We pray now, Lord, that as as we're tempted to lose heart, we're tempted to flee from the battle, would you encourage us? Lord, to give us boldness and, and courage to lead our families. For the ladies, Lord, in this church, we pray that they'd be Deborahs, encouraging the men to keep fighting the good fight. And Lord, that all of us as a church would glorify you. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to sing a song that actually has, we sang this last week, but it has weapons of warfare, so to speak. Shield and sword that's really embedded in gospel truth. So I encourage you, sing along, reflect upon these words, and... um, Let's worship together.